Okay. Hey, everyone. This is John Mandrola. I'm on Sensible Medicine Podcast, and I'm with my friend Andrew Foy at Penn State University. Andrew is an uh, academic cardiologist and sort of a, a mentor of mine because he's such a great thinker. Andrew, welcome and good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for uh, asking me to come on today. All right. Today, we've got three topics. We're going to talk uh, one in atrial fibrillation, a very uh, kind of popular study published in JAMA called Remedial, which was looking at the effects of atrial fibrillation ablation on anxiety and depression. We're going to look at what I think is the most important study coming out of the recent European Society of Cardiology meeting, which is a frail AF study looking at anticoagulation in frail elderly patients. And the third topic today, we're going to hit on coronary artery calcium screening. And gosh, this is a, a huge topic because so many, so many people and patients are interested in coronary calcium. And it's really, really a, a, a really topical thing going on in medicine today. So Andrew, let's start off with, uh, let's start off with a remedial study. This was published in JAMA on September 12th. Atrial fibrillation, catheterablation versus medical therapy and psychological distress is the title. This was out of two centers in Australia, two kind of really good centers, um, uh, investigators that I'm friends with. Um, this was a randomized controlled trial, 100 patients with symptomatic atrial fib. And it was to determine whether catheter ablation is associated with greater improvements in markers of psychological distress. And the comparator group was medical therapy alone. And, you know, I guess the background is that patients with atrial fibrillation have anxiety and, you know, mental distress about the rhythm. I can speak firsthand about this. I had AFib for about a year, a year and a half, and man, it gets into your head um, having this thing where your heart is flipping around and you're just, it's like a, it's really, it's really like, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it bugs the shit out of you. And so the, their idea was to randomize patients to catheter ablation versus medical therapy. And their primary outcome was a, you know, a questionnaire, a, a hospital anxiety and depression scale score at 12 months. So before we go into the results, right off the bat, what what are you what are you thinking about the background and the the plan here? Well, so I guess just in regard to the issue of uh, psychology and how that plays into the morbidity of of atrial fibrillation, um, I do think it's very important. It's very interesting. I mean, obviously, there's a a wide spectrum of people with AFib um, to people who are highly symptomatic with it. And I think, you know, anxiety um, certainly plays a role there. Um, there's people that notice it, but aren't particularly bothered by it. And then there's sort of people that don't even know, notice it at all. And so, you know, I, I guess I would sort of take that bucket of people out of here, which, you know, I'm not sure how how significant that is. I'm sort of just shooting from the hip here. It seems to change as people get older. You know, my population as a general cardiologist, you know, people 75 and older, I'd say it might be as high as a half or two thirds that really don't know 
that that they're in it. I think it's different, you know, when it's younger patients, people with lone AFib, there seems to be differences there in terms of, of like, you know, the symptomatology involved with it. But so, um, you know, this particular uh, trial wanted to get at the issue of, you know, does it improve psychologic metrics in, in people who are, you know, who are randomized to ablation or, or medical therapy. Um, and, you know, it is a small trial. Um, and frankly, I think if you're going to look at psychological markers or, or anything with like subjective, uh, subjective outcomes where perception plays a big role, I think you really need a sham to say anything, frankly, valid about about the intervention. So I, I think in this case, um, I would just sort of take the results with a grain of salt. Well, can you expand on what do you mean by a sham or just, yeah, talk more about that. Well, so, I mean, you can imagine uh, if, if these are patients that, you know, have symptomatic AFib, um, you know, one thing is I think framing of, of the management of AFib is really important when people get the initial diagnosis. I think framing it uh, in a reassuring way uh, can go a long way in terms of how people handle it for their entire lives. Um, I always try to be very reassuring when, when the diagnosis is made for the first time or when people are brought into the hospital with it. And just try to let people know that this is a manageable condition. There's a lot of options for it. You know, it's not going to be something that directly kills you. And we can sort of reduce the risk of indirect badness by, by anticoagulation in most cases. And the risk of those events are relatively small in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, the first thing is I, I do try to be very reassuring with patients when I'm talking about this diagnosis. But even so, I mean, there, there's people that are uh, very bothered by it. And then there's people that do have a significant sort of like, I don't want to say psychosomatic because it's not psychosomatic when you're, when you're in atrial fibrillation and your heart's going hundred or 110 or 120 beats a minute. But I mean, they experience it much, much differently than other people. And, it, and it's much more distressing to them and bothersome. Um, but, you know, in those patients that, presumably are going to be in a trial such as this, you know, they have some frame of reference where um, not being in atrial fibrillation is beneficial for them and it's associated with their health and wellness. And, you know, essentially now you're randomizing people to an intervention or you're saying, we're just going to continue doing what we've been doing, which is probably not working. Otherwise you wouldn't be in this trial to begin with. So, you know, it creates the whole placebo effect, the nocebo effect on the part of the people that don't get randomized to uh, to ablation. And um, I mean, to me, uh, I don't think because of those issues, looking at um, sort of subjective endpoints, uh, I, I just frankly don't find that that valid of approach, to be honest. Tell me what you think about this idea. I had this thing going around in my head about if you were studying depression or anxiety and you were studying a drug, like, I don't know, SSRI or whatever, I mean, wouldn't you have to compare it to a placebo or control? Sure. And aren't aren't sure. procedure trials the same way? Well, they should be, but they, they normally aren't. 
I mean, because of the logistics and I guess, you know, people would argue that that's far less feasible to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're almost never that way. And it's always um, a bias uh, of the trial that that essentially, you know, you just have to accept. Um, I mean, I think a study like this would be better had had, you know, there been uh, a sham procedure uh, like we saw um you know, like we saw with, with the famous uh, PCI trial, and I'm blanking on the acronym for it right now. Orbita. Orbita, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm going to link, uh, I'm going to link on, when I put this on the Substack post, I'm going to link to a paper from Brian Olshansky and Jack. Um, this was in January 2007, and he's a review article about placebo and nocebo effects in cardiovascular health, and he talks about just the research into uh, control arms and placebo arms and just how even the color of a pill can make a difference in the placebo effects. And, you know, he talks about how a big surgery versus a small surgery is just going to be, is just going to have placebo effects. And I'm just, yeah, I'm really, I'm really just thinking that if you're a patient with atrial fibrillation and you're minimized to have this procedure and you're done in a center that sort of is known for its expertise and procedures and versus a patient is randomized to you're you're not getting the procedure uh it just seems to me that that's going to be a bias and, and and i mean it's not just the placebo and the and the nocebo i mean it's also performance bias on the part of the investigators um and not not just doing the ablation but the whole management of the patients after the procedure i mean everybody know, you know i mean essentially everybody knows who got what and, you know, people, these investigators are, are motivated to sort of, I would say test certain hypotheses, but I think they're human beings. I mean, they're motivated to sort of like prove a point in a, in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, I mean, it's nothing nefarious. I mean, I think everybody is just being, you know, acting like human beings, but yeah, performance bias plays it plays a huge role in these sorts of studies. I mean, we see that. And so when we talk about what is the difference in placebo versus sham, I mean, you know, we have the Orbita trial for, for PCI. We have uh, the simplicity trial when it comes to renal denervation. And sometimes you can't really even explain it, you know, in, you know, it, it's just like, look, this is the difference when you have no sham control and it's like a 20 point difference in blood pressure and when you have sham control it's like a three or four you know point difference and you know it just is it is what it is i mean it's like the history of medical interventions we see it so much that you know i don't it, I, you know i don't think it's even that important to speculate on the motivation of the investigators it just is what it is i mean you know, we, we know we need sham controls, especially if we're dealing with subjective uh, endpoints. And so that would just be sort of my conclusion there. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about non-nefarious, because we talk a lot about performance bias and sensible medicine, and and it's it's non-nefarious. It's just human nature, right? You, you're, you're a proponent for ablation, and we I do ablation, and when you do ablation on a patient you're invested and they feel cared for. And, you know, it's just, it, it, yeah, it's, it's just 
human nature? I, you know, I, I a long time ago, my a, a colleague of mine wrote a piece about intervention bias in, in medicine. And, um, you know, one of the things that we sort of, I didn't even really know how to assign an explanation for like what this was, but it's just people that decide to become subspecialists and proceduralists and surgeons, like they have an affinity for the procedures that they do. Like it's natural. Like they spent an extra year or two of training or something like that. They probably decided to do the specialty because of this. Like, for example, you know, when I was in an operating room, I never felt a particular affinity to be there. I wanted to get out as soon as possible, you know, like even in the cath lab. I mean, I enjoyed it a little bit, but I didn't want to be there. Right. And it's like, you know, but the people that went into it, they love it. And so it's sort of like, I understand why they, you know, why a, a an EP doc who does ablations, you know, is invested in ablation for the sake of the procedure itself. I mean, and it, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if we're talking about how to test something, you know, in the most scientifically rigorous way, this would not be the way to do that for the endpoints that we're dealing with here. All right. Perfect. The results, of course, uh, the patients in the ablation arm had much better scores on their anxiety and depression uh, uh, test. And I could give you the numbers, but it doesn't matter. They're just highly statistically significant uh, p-values of 0.005. Um, all of the secondary endpoints that looked at um, uh, psychological and anxiety or uh, depression and anxiety scores were better. Uh, uh, there was less atrial fibrillation in the ablation arm than there was in the um, medical arm. Although, although these were young patients, 59 years old, and the median AF burden in the ablation arm was zero, uh, um, very low burden AFib in the ablation arm. And the AF burden in the medical arm was still median, only 15%. So we're talking about low AF burden. And the results, uh, the conclusion is uh, in this trial, participants with symptomatic AFib improvement in psychological symptoms of anxiety and depression was observed with catheterablation, but not medical therapy. And so, you know, the the online, you know, the online impression and is, you know, Doctors shouldn't downplay the results. Uh, they shouldn't downplay the the psychological distress of AFib. And here's a trial showing that AF ablation works. And you know, I just all of it is true that we shouldn't dismiss psychological distress. We should reassure and educate and take away fear, and all of those things are super important. But the idea that uh, AF ablation does this, um, that may work, but I don't know how you, I don't know how you can conclude that from when one group gets this procedure and one group gets medicines that are, you know, like you said, not, not working. And I know medicines are the standard of care, right? So the medicines are what we do, but still, I just, I just have a problem with it. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, um, again, sort of this placebo, nocebo thing, but you, you know, you can almost imagine a case where it's like, if you were testing the ablation versus also like a brand new medicine that was supposed to be, 
you know, the greatest drug in the, you know, the greatest drug for, for AF in the world. And, you know, there was some sort of like excitement or enthusiasm to test the medicine and to test the ablation, you know, but it's, it's like that balance isn't even really, I don't get the, you know, I mean, you can sort of comes across as the enthusiasm here was, was for the ablation. And uh, I think without a sham control, it's subject to the biases that, that, that we've mentioned. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I would just sort of leave it at that. I mean, I, I think the issues of the psychology are important, um, but I don't think that this says anything definitive about the efficacy of, of AFib ablation, you know, on those particular outcomes. Um, let me, uh, I, I won't beat it to death, but I do want to say that when I speak about doing sham controls in AF ablation, there's a lot of pushback amongst my colleagues that you can't really do a sham control because AF ablation involves transeptal heart catheterization and going into the left atrium. And, you know, just to try and simulate that with a procedure is unethical and, you know, you would bring harm to the patient and would you sign your mother up for it and all of this business. And I think it is challenging. Uh, that's one challenge of doing a sham control in AF ablation. I'll tell you another challenge is that with the advent of smartwatches, and um, these devices that can detect AFib, it's very difficult to maintain blinding amongst patients about you know whether they're feeling AFib. But I think that you know what we've seen. I always go back to cite the the biventricular pacing or CRT literature. I mean, there they did do sham control and they found that there was a real effect of biventricular pacing, but it was a small effect, and that there there. That that the majority of it was probably placebo effect, and I guess the the concern I have is not that AF ablation is all placebo, but I think it would be scientifically interesting to know what the placebo portion of the positive effect was. Yeah, well, I mean, I yeah, I, I think that to address this in the most scientifically rigorous way possible that that would that would have to be the conduct of the trial and I, I mean I do think it could be done I mean you could make a case it could be unethical not to do a sham control because then we're not actually getting the most valuable information possible on the intervention and maybe we're subjecting people to an intervention that's not beneficial at all and you know and look, I don't necessarily believe that's the case when it comes to afib ablation, but but I think you know that the ethical argument, in in my opinion, is not strong. I mean, that's sort of a defense, you know. I, I mean, and it, but but I don't find that compelling. Yeah. Well, just final comment is that there are ongoing af uh, sham ablation trials going on at least one in Germany and and I think one or two in UK. And and I think the problem will be that they're, the, the degree of the control group is is not like it was in Orbita where they actually did cannulation of the coronary artery and put a wire across the lesion and didn't put a stent in. But we'll see. We'll see. All right, next topic. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Next topic, ESC, 
I mean, there are a lot of European Society of Cardiology meeting in, meeting in Amsterdam. I mean, there are a lot of studies, multiple publications in the New England Journal, PCI trials, device trials, uh, lots of trials. But I think the one that really stood out to me was a general internal medicine trial uh, done in the Netherlands uh, called Frail AFib. Um, Frail AFib was published in circulation. First author was Linda Jostin, uh, J-O-O-S-T-E-N. Um, and this was a trial, and this was a trial of elderly, frail patients, mean age, 83 years old. And these were older uh, patients, mostly homebound, who were doing well with uh, vitamin K antagonists. Now, in Europe, they, they basically call warfarin is one of the VKA antagonists that, that uh, antagonize vitamin K. We don't we, the only VKA that we have in U.S. is warfarin, but basically warfarin-like drugs that uh, elevate the INR and anticoagulate patients. So they're doing well, um, they're AFib patients doing well on VKA. And what was happening in the Netherlands is that uh, a lot of general internal medicine doctors were switching these older, frailer patients to uh, direct-acting oral anticoagulants most common ones used in the U.S. are rivaroxaban and apixaban, Xarelto and, and Eloquis. And the senior author of this paper, Gert Gunn Giersing, uh, felt like this wasn't maybe right. I mean, this this these patients were doing fine on on basically warfarin, and it, maybe even though there's data showing that direct acting anticoagulants were better than warfarin, these were different kinds of patients and. So Frail AF was a study where they randomized these patients, um, uh, uh, these 83-year-olds, to, to uh, stay on their VKA drugs or to switch to um, uh, the direct-acting oral anticoagulant of the doctor's choice. And all four were used. And they powered the trial to show that it was beneficial to switch and the major, the main primary outcome was major bleeding. And I thought, okay, the studies show that direct acting, direct acting anticoagulants are probably better at reducing bleeding. And so we're going to power the trial for superiority. But at the first interim look, they found not superiority. They found that there was a 69% higher rate of bleeding in the switching arm versus the stay on VKA arm. And they terminated a trial and, and concluded that it was definitely worse to switch, which was, you know, it was a huge surprise. Um, it was a late, a late breaking, what they call hotline trial at ESC. And, you know, it doesn't make the New England Journal of Medicine because these are frail elderly patients. It was a publicly funded, government funded study. And but scientifically, I just thought this was huge. I mean, just huge because. We switch patients all the time to direct acting oral anticoagulants because we feel like they're better drugs than VKAs, but not in these patients, obviously. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a great trial. Um, I am always on the lookout for any trials that explicitly um, try to focus on patients with multimorbidity or frailty or older age. Um, and while it seems like the medical community is often surprised when these trials are negative, I, I'm not 
Um, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about treatment effect heterogeneity and sort of the factors that, that come into play with that. Hold on a second. Hold on one second. Treatment effect heterogeneity. That's a lot of jargon. Slow down and break so that when, down. When a treatment doesn't doesn't uh, work the same in group subgroups of patients who are phenotypically different. Um, so our clinical trials tend to involve patients who are a bit younger, a bit healthier than average, have less uh, multimorbidities. Um, and I think those trials are often sort of positioned in a way to sort of, you know, find the sweet spot of the intervention, you know, where it's most likely to be effective, uh, and sort of least likely to be harmful. And it's sort of patients who are least likely to have a lot of other issues when it comes to competing risks and, and things of that nature. And so, um, you know, interventions are, you know, oftentimes found to be effective when they're, when they're, you know, when, any, when they're presented in New England Journal of Medicine, for instance. Um, but I don't think that in many cases, the patients that are in clinical trials aren't really representative of the, of the patients that we treat in clinical practice. Uh, even when we're talking about, you know, patients who you would think, you know, would meet the inclusion criteria for a clinical trial. I mean, there's often differences that we don't really uh, account for. Um, and so I love, you know, I love trial designs that specifically look at patients who are, who are more complex. And this was one of those trials. Um, I think, you know, on the one hand, it's surprising because one of the one of the selling points of, of the DOAX is that you sort of, you pick a fixed dose and you don't have to worry about um, monitoring and you don't have to worry about patients sort of being super therapeutic. You don't have to worry about them being sub-therapeutic and you get the full effect of the drug, you know, you, you, you know, more consistently. And, you know, I think this trial challenges that. And, it, and, you know, what I would take from it is that in these frailer patients who have, are going to have more, uh, a lot other medical conditions, um, they're going to be on a lot more drugs that are going to, you know, have interactions and, you know, they're going to have a lot more issues with uh, end organ metabolism when it comes to liver, kidneys, et cetera. Uh, you, maybe you really need to monitor INR to make sure that these things are truly going to be safe. And, um, you know, we don't do that with DOAX and, you know, they're not as safe. I mean, at least that's sort of, you know, what the trial, the results of the trial suggest. Um, and I mean, you know, I think it was fairly well powered for, for the endpoint that they tested. I mean, these are certainly people that were susceptible to having a lot of endpoint events. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it sort of is one of those results. Uh, it is what it is. Now, you know, I mean, these trials are tough too from a standpoint of, you know, placebo and sham and, you know, the monitoring involved and sometimes, you know, can, you know, they're not the easiest to maintain blinding in either. Um, but. But I would add, wouldn't you like major bleeding 
is a different endpoint than a score on anxiety and depression. Yeah, great. Yeah, agree 100%. That's a harder endpoint, number one. Number two, I mean, I do think we should say that this doesn't tell us that, this doesn't tell us about a de novo new patient, 83 years old, who's homebound or frail or has multimorbidity. It doesn't tell us which drug is better, the warfarin or DOAC. It just tells us that if we have a patient who's doing well on VKA, then it probably is not a good idea to switch. Yeah, I mean... What, what, you disagree? No, I mean, I, I think... I mean, I think that's right from a technical standpoint. And if we're being sort of as rigid as possible, you know, but at the same time, obviously there's going to be a lot more patients in the future that get diagnosed with AFib as frail elderly people and need to be started on any drug, right? And so, you know, of course, there's going to be the inclination to want to apply these results to all patients who are frail and elderly uh, with this condition. And um, cause, cause let's be honest, I mean, it's not exactly like any of the other trials included them either. So we can't really make a case that we have a strong foundation of evidence for these patients. Probably this trial is the closest thing that we have to talk about the efficacy or the safety at least of anticoagulation in frail elderly patients with AFib, um, and, you know, and there may there may be a, a few others historically, but you know, again, I'm kind of shooting from from the hip. No, I get here, your point. But... Be- I get your point because, you know, the the DOAC trials had very very small numbers of patients that were similar to this that were enrolled, of course, but uh, this is a very surprising result now. This gets me to this gets me to really where I want to push you because this is this is why I called it the most important trial from um you know from ESC because yeah specifically it tells us about anticoagulation in frail old elder patients of this switching business but to me the fact that it's such a surprising result a sixty nine percent highly statistically significant clinically important harm from something that we thought was uh, probably the right thing to do, or many people thought was the right thing to do. I mean, in clinical practice, I see this all the time. I see uh, older patients, you know, that are heart failure, um, uh, uh, secondary prevention, stroke prevention, all of these things that we do and all many of the studies that form the evidence base, the so-called evidence-based medicine, were done in ambulatory outpatients who were good enough to be in a clinical trial that had family supports that would drive them to the clinical trials. And to me, this really gets to the whole idea of evidence translation of, of how careful we should be translating evidence. And I love evidence, but translating evidence from clinical trials to the patients that we treat. Yeah, I, I think that's why it is. It's such a great trial. Um, you know, it's why I love these trials. I mean, when when you test interventions in these, I mean, they're sort of referred to as special populations, but the reality is, is that they're really, I mean, they're not, they're the more common pop, you know, population of patients, or they're at least 
equally as common, right? But we sort of call them special populations. And, and you know, the reality is we're often surprised by, by the results of these trials. They often show that interventions that work in, you know, in patients who are younger and healthier don't have the same effect uh, in, in, you know, in these special populations. And, and I think we need much, many more clinical trials in these patients. I mean, this was actually the, I think the title of, of the editorial that I wrote in John Maternal Medicine earlier this year that involved doing a, a trial of early invasive versus conservative management of NSTEMI patients uh, in, in frail patients with NSTEMI. And, and the results were essentially, you know, no difference. There may be sort of a, a, a trend toward harm in the patients who are in the uh, early invasive arm. And it's like, you know, we really need to be testing. Uh, we need to try to test interventions in these patients and I would say when we haven't done the tests, our default should be the null hypothesis that these things don't work. And I mean, we, we sh you know, should be less inclined to do them. I mean, and I think that that's, uh, you know, there might be people that sort of nod along and say like, yeah, that sounds correct. But if you, if you just sort of look at how we operate in clinical practice in the hospital, I mean, we do exactly the opposite. You know, and, and I think one of like the one of, I think, the worst and really the most dangerous sort of misconceptions that's out there is that in these special populations who are at higher risk of of sort of outcome events or primary endpoint events, that they should be the most likely to benefit from our interventions. Because, you know, if you just say that something re reduces the risk of an outcome by 30 percent. But, you know, it's 5% in one group and it's 30% another group, you know, it's a difference of like 1% versus, you know, 20, you know, I, the absolute reductions are, are much bigger and you'd think that the numbers needed to treat are much smaller, but it's, that is absolutely not true. Um, and we have no evidence, like, in the, the evidence base really doesn't support that at all for every like you know condition there's sort of a sweet spot where you know the outcome risk is is like enough to show an effect but like you don't have the issues with competing risk and, and safety and those sorts of things but then when when you look at patients that aren't in those clinical trials i mean all bets are off really they might have two three four times the risk of of the primary outcome but the intervention has no effect whatsoever you know whatsoever and it's and it's it's not even as simple as like oh well it's just competing risk they die of other things more often it, no it's it's even that you know the intervention you know there we don't even reduce the risk of the things in the primary endpoint you know like it, it's very complicated and and I don't think that people appreciate that as much as as they should. This is such an important point, and it's really, I think it comes. I think some of the some of the misconception comes from the statin business, right? Because statins are statins are the most studied drug and and we say that we say that they reduce risk of cardiovascular events by 25%. And the higher the absolute risk of an event, the higher your 10-year risk, the more the reduction. And but but it's not even true with statins, is it? Because there's two trials 
one in heart failure, one in end-stage renal disease. Now there's so, four. There's four because there's two in each of those populations. Okay, good point. There's two. Okay, so in in those populations, which are super high risk, right? Dialysis patients have huge numbers of cardiovascular events. The statins don't reduce it. So this, but they but they did reduce LDL. They improved the cholesterol profile exactly like they did in you know the other populations, and they didn't reduce atherosclerotic cardiovascular events or death or anything. And um, you know, and, and people have provided some explanations what what might make dialysis patients different. But the same is true for the heart failure. Heart failure, right? And and it's just it's not simple. And I think it's, there's a lot of complex stuff involved in this, but, you know, I think that people are safest to remain skeptical when you're not dealing with patients who would be in a clinical trial, you know, and, 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 and that's not easy, you know, let's say for the average physician who might not, you know, they know the literature, they, they know what they're supposed to do. They pass the, you know, they do all the things that they need to do to be competent professionals, but like, they might not know, you know, the intricacies of the inclusion exclusion criteria and think that, well, you know, this patient that I'm dealing with is, they have an NSTEMI, for example, and they're 68 years old. And, you know, I mean, they haven't had a major bleeding event in three months. So clearly they're probably like the people that we talk about in this, you know, in the early invasive versus conservative management literature. But then you say, oh, but, you know, oh, by the way, they've had a stroke. They have peripheral vascular disease. They have, you know, uncontrolled diabetes with an A1C of 11 um, you know, like maybe they're wheelchair bound or they're, they have ambulatory dysfunction and in a, so many ways, like that patient would have never been included in one of those trials, but you know, you wouldn't really know that. And I mean, and that's why this stuff I think is really, um, I think we have an idea that the evidence is much stronger for many things that we do than it really is, especially when it applies to, I think the majority of the patients that we treat. But but I also want to push you that it's it's not nihilism, right? We're not nihilistic about the things that we do. I just think that I just think that the evidence gives us um, it, it it gives us an effect size in those patients who are treated, and it 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 gives us an idea of an average effect. But you have to be skeptical about whether the patient who you're treating would whether that same average effect would would apply and then if it if it, even if it does apply what what would that patient um feel about that effect size and whether it's worth the cost and hassle right. of a procedure or medicine yeah absolutely yeah all right well listen um We've gone on for a while on these two topics. We were going to talk about coronary calcium, but I think that we're almost uh, almost at an hour, and I think we should table the the coronary calcium uh, talk um, for a future podcast. And uh, it's always good to it's always good to uh, you know it's like bike racing you should should leave enough energy for the party afterwards. So we'll we'll come to that. Uh, but I really really this is been a great discussion uh about these two trials and and i appreciate it so much all right thanks okay
All right, I'm going to end the recording.